Also joining us on the platform now for our panel discussion is uh, Dom Alquin Reed, who is a Benedictine monk from St. Michael's Abbey in Farnborough. Uh, he will be speaking to us a little later this afternoon on the subject of prayer, so I can introduce him more fully at that point. Now, what we have done, we've had quite a lot of questions submitted both before today and during the lunch break and we have tried to gather together uh, the uh, questions under various headings the topics, taking typical topics which have occurred uh, more frequently or most frequently amongst the questions you've submitted. So what I'm going to do is just uh, put the, the question and then invite the various members of our panel to um, give us their contribution, their comment and their opinions. We're going to start with a, a question that is uh, quite topical, uh, bearing in mind some of the publicity about the, um, uh, the presidential election in the United States. Um, if it is wrong to dictate to a Catholic politician how to vote, uh, how does that square with the Catechism of the Catholic Church? Who would like to start on that one? I would uh, just make a comment on, on that, that in the, the paragraphs that the questioner submitted, kindly in a written question last week, about the, the governance uh, power that bishops are entrusted with, the Catechism really envisages as far as I can read it more or less exclusively the governance of, of the church this catechism is, is coming after a period of disengagement from the various concordants that rather successfully marked the history of the church for quite a lot of the 20th century of the Second Vatican Council particularly with the doctrine of religious liberty we saw those concordants often voluntarily dissolved uh, and so uh, the powers of, of the bishops are more or less, as far as I can understand them, in those paragraphs in the catechism, uh, put forth in purely spiritual terms, to do with the governance of their flock, of their particular churches, of their care for neighbouring churches, of their care for churches that group together in regions or nations, and then in the universal magisterium of the church, but not on the civil field. If you look up politics in the catechism, there's a very, very short reference to it, something like original sin affects many aspects of life. One of the aspects that affects is, is, is politics. However, having said that, on the more general theme of, if you like, the philosophy of the catechism that has had such a, a correcting and beneficial influence over these last ten years, something can be said in particular. And it's an aspect I think other members of the panel may want to develop. But I remember very clearly, as some of you do, in 1997, that document, The Common Good, in which, among other things, it was said that it was permissible for Catholics in this country in the context of that general election to vote for pro-abortion candidates. And we even, if you remember, told how that we'd vote for them, but then we would perhaps say, look, I'd like to come and see you about this because I'd like to explain my position, but I don't quite agree with you. But it was a green light to vote for pro-abortion candidates. Now, the bishops have, as far as I can see, uh, changed their mind on this. The document that came up recently is considerably better on that issue and this I think is in keeping not only with what was happened at the last ad limino visit but uh, a general um, reception shall we say of, of the catechism so while the catechism as far as I know does not directly deal with this subject I think indirectly it, it, it has done Right we'll move on to the, the second question um, it concerns the uh, sacrament of confirmation and the questioner, in fact more than one questioner here, has drawn attention to the fact that there is no mention of us becoming, in inverted commas, soldiers of Jesus Christ. 
and the question is posed, why is this omitted? Who would like to go on that? I'll take that. There's quite an extensive section on, in the Catechism with relation to the Sacrament of Confirmation and obviously it's treated in the Catechism within the, its context of a Sacrament of Initiation and, this, and the Catechism makes reference to the Church's liturgical t- traditions both East and West. The paragraph that we referred to is actually preceded by the following explanation. By this anointing, that's the anointing with chrism, the confirmand receives the mark, the seal of the Holy Spirit. A seal is a symbol of a person, a sign of personal authority or ownership of an object. Hence, soldiers were marked with their leader's seal and slaves with their masters. A seal authenticates a juridical act or document and occasionally makes it secret. So there is a reference, however oblique, to the idea of being a soldier in, in the, the context of the catechism's treatment of the sacrament. I think it's fair to comment that practice in relation to the administration of sacraments, the sacrament of confirmation, certainly with reference to age, is in a certain amount of free fall. In this country, confirmation is administered variously in dioceses at the age of 7, 9, 14 and even older um, and that decision largely lies with individual diocesan bishops. I think it's probably fair to say that our own practice in preparation and administration of the sacrament now is not uh, as uniform as it once was. The Catechism makes an appeal to a broader understanding of confirmation as expressed in the Church's teaching East and West. I think the idea of being a soldier of Christ is there. Obviously, it it never received um, a full reference, even in the the former liturgy of of confirmation. It's become part of of our understanding in, in a devotional way of the obligations that we assume in the sacrament of confirmation thank you Father Um, no other comments on that one no Um, now the next question is I think uh, perhaps a little broader and I'm sure uh, all of our panel members will uh, want to make a contribution here And again, we've gathered together quite a number of questions into this composite one. Given that the aim of this day is to work out how best to use the catechism to protect children and vulnerable parishioners from dissent, how does the panel suggest that we overcome the opposition to the catechism by Ofsted RE inspectors, teacher training colleges, school heads, RE teachers, catechists and the Bishop's Commissions on Education and Catechetics. Who's going to go first on that one? Well, I think we have an Ofsted RE inspector on the panel, don't we? <laughs> Will he step forward? I, yes, I should explain. I've, only in the course of this last week I've just been named as an inspector for for religious education in, the, in this diocese. I haven't undertaken an inspection as yet, but I would, I would hope that the benchmark of the catechism in, in relation to religious education is something which we can increasingly appeal to. I've been, been told that my first inspection will be in a large central London school. I can't name it, but if I tell you that it's a school that's educated two sons of an important couple who live in a street to my left, you'll, you'll have some idea of, the, of possibly the, the school that, that I'm making reference to. As I explained this morning, and as several speakers have since alluded to, that if we're talking about a process of recovery then in one sense the the more frequently we ourselves make reference to the resource that the church has given us in the catechism the more effective the catechism will be in this whole debate if we're talking about the 
the use of catechetical materials either in schools or in parishes there is much ground to be regained but I think there are, I think there are clear indications not least of all because uh, a lot of a lot of the old die-hard liberals are, I'm afraid, falling off their perches and, and being replaced by people who don't share their ideology. The church, the church is becoming, in, in one sense, um, smaller, and that's re- re- regrettable, I think. But I, I think a common mind is emerging rather more clearly, and certainly I, I discover that when I speak to to priests of my own own generation and to young people, particularly parents, um, young parents in our parishes, those who are concerned about the Catholic formation of their children. I think a common mind on these issues is, is far more evidence now than it was even five and certainly ten years ago. We have to hope that by making constant appeal to the uh, standard that the catechism represents that we can have some influence in this most important aspect of the formation of our Catholic young people. So that's to say one thing on that particular question. Um, there was a statement made a year or so ago that the Catholic Church exists to protect children. Well, the Catholic Church does protect children, but primarily the Catholic Church exists for the salvation of souls. Um, So, whatever we do, we bear that in mind. Um, It's the most important thing that affects each one of us, what happens to us when we leave this earth. And so um, we know what's gone wrong in the schools, we know what the troubles are, and if we can concentrate our efforts on producing new books, which are available, and try and get them in use in schools so that the children um, are going to be given what they're entitled to, the faith of our fathers. I remember when I was a student at the English College in Rome, we used to begin each year at the uh, there was a summer residence of the college um, uh, called Palazzola, a beautiful place, and a bishop usually came out to give us our retreat in the autumn before the academic year started. I remember one year, uh, Bishop uh, Cormac Murphy O'Connor, as he was then before his elevation came, oddly enough his retreat's never been published, but there was one or two comments of it that are, are, are germane, and he'd been the rector of the English college, And he was musing that in those days, for what it's worth, about half the students there were Oxbridge graduates. Uh, I'm not putting any particular emphasis on that, not being one myself. But uh, he, he said that over the years, a great many people who had very honed academic reputations, who were, um, uh, had very good degrees and doctorates, etc., had uh, passed through the college, as they indeed were then. And yet, hardly anything of note had been written in that time by any product of the, the venerable English college. No great work of theology, of catechesis, Uh, the academic uh, life seemed to end as soon as the seminary finished. And he talked, and he was very right, about a certain anti-intellectual, anti-academic bent in particularly the English clergy. It's not so prevalent, not historically has not been so in in Ireland or or the United States. Now, that is, thank God, beginning to to change. We have Dom Alcuin on the panel today who has been responsible, as you know, for many uh, interesting volumes in the last few years. Now, the relevance of this is that we need people who will put the teaching of the catechism, which is more like a compendium of a library rather than one book in practice, into uh, concrete 
catechisms that will get into schools, programs. I myself have, have written uh, a catechism for First Communion. Uh, Father Wadsworth talked about the, this dreadful golden book, which is awful, that's found in so many places. And I wanted to produce something that was uh, at the one time orthodox, in line with the teaching of the catechism, traditional but not old-fashioned, and also looked nice. And I was fortunate to get a, an artist uh, I got the imprimatur of Daphne MacLeod for it, but unfortunately I haven't got the imprimatur of my diocesan bishop. Why? Because it contains pictures of the liturgy in our church where we face east. And uh, until the pictures are changed, I'm in a bit of a quandary about this, this book. But that is my, my point, that we need to, many of us, uh, to get moving on this, uh, not just priests, but we have an opportunity, as Father said before, as being the principal collaborators with the bishops, to translate the teaching of the catechism into uh, practical programs. And I'd just like to end with one little anecdote, uh, something that was left off my CV, partly because it was an old one that was submitted, was that I have for the last few years been a uh, chaplain to aid to the church in need in, in Great Britain. And some of you, perhaps you're here today, drew attention to the fact that the catechism that we had printed millions of copies of, uh, at least in the English version, did not conform to the catechism of the Catholic Church. And uh, these were very helpful comments. Uh, I, I agreed with you. I presented a paper. This was finally submitted to Rome. A, a, um, somebody from the Cardinal Ratzka's congregation went through the catechism, rewrote it, uh, and has added 50 or 60 pages to a small work, bringing it in line with the new uh, catechism, the catechism of the Catholic Church, and now millions and millions of copies of that are being printed. Thanks to members of, of this organization who were uh, responsible for that at the beginning. So this is the sort of thing that we need to be doing, all of us. It's not just a question of priests or academics, but the lay faithful have a very important role to making sure that the message of the catechism gets into schools. I'd like to underline the need for sound materials and new materials. Teachers are very busy. Many catechists in parishes are volunteers and are similarly busy. If we can produce sound, very well illustrated, readable, workable texts with plenty of activities, again that are sound, they will be eaten up in spite of their orthodoxy as it were. In my own experience in a school some six or seven years, six of those years being after the publication of the Catechism, where I did everything I could to litter every classroom in the school with a copy and made sure every sixth form pupil had their own copy, uh, when the Ofsted inspectors came, indeed when the then auxiliary bishop, now a metropolitan archbishop somewhere in the Midlands, came to visit, they were astonished to find the Catechism everywhere. But they couldn't complain. They couldn't complain. They could not discipline us for having copies of the Catechism of the Catholic Church in the hands of staff or of pupils. They were astonished, but they couldn't complain. The other thing I think we need to, to underline is that the new generation of teachers is, is coming through and, and they, they don't have a 1970s or, or whatever agenda one of my responsibilities in the religious education department of the school in which I was in was the formation of student teachers. I presented each upon their arrival with a gift copy of the catechism and they had never seen it before and they thought it was marvellous. Um, be generous with your gifts to, to, to upcoming teachers. Uh, open their eyes to the riches that are there. Uh, and, but if we're looking at something to resolve or some, some direction in which to go today, I think texts that are very, very fine productions, beautiful productions, are very, very desperately needed. One pet text, Father's mentioned a First Communion text, I would love to see an alternative penitential liturgies book to those sold by so many publishers today, because there are always penitential liturgies in, in schools. If we could write a text or compile a text which had sound doctrine and sound liturgical practice, I'm sure it would have a very great market, but more so 
a very, very great pastoral use. Um, thank you very much, panel, for those uh, answers. In fact, the next question overlaps very distinctly on the last one, but I still feel perhaps it's worth putting to the panel for maybe some uh, additional comments. And um, this one concerns what has often been referred to today as the, the old penny catechism. And um, I, I perhaps have a, a personal reflection, if I may just uh, slot this in here. Being a convert to the Catholic faith, um, some years ago I was received into the church in 1977 after some 20 uh, years as a lapsed Protestant. And um, the lady whom I married, um, a, a good um, cradle Catholic, uh, still recalled many parts of the catechism off by heart, the old penny catechism. And um, she was much more of my catechist than the priest who gave me instruction. Um, so, I, I, as I say, I, I have a, a, a personal interest in this as well. And the question, again, which we've um, uh, really condensed from a number, says, should knowing the penny catechism, penny in inverted commas, should knowing the penny catechism still be an essential requirement for a Catholic boy or girl? I think knowing the truths of the penny catechism is, is an indispensable um, requirement for any Catholic, young or old, knowing and understanding those truths. I think it's important for us to, to grasp that for all young people, regardless of whether they're educated within the context of Catholic education or whether they, they receive that formation from their, from their parents at home, live in a, in a context, the world in which we find ourselves, that requires what we used to call apologetics. Explaining how and why what we believe is different from what other people say. And I think any young person who regards themselves to be Catholic finds them in the, themselves in that situation almost on a daily basis. And I would say that that is regardless of, of whether they are attending a Catholic school or not. In my own school, which is not a Catholic school, but which makes provision for the education of Catholics, that apologetic aspect to education has become all important and I've and I found for the most part that young people respond very positively to it and come to a greater and clearer understanding of the teaching of our own church by seeing it in relief to what other people say by being able to define truth in, in the context of seeing it in relation to error the work of the penny catechism is very direct in its approach. As Father Edward said at the beginning of the day, the, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the text that we're considering today, is a different type of text. It's a very extensive compendium of the Church's teaching over a long period of time. Its formulations are often quite technical, um, using formulas and words that have a resonance for those who've studied studied theology and, and may be communicating a point which is easily missed by somebody who doesn't have that point of reference. That's why this further stage into which we still to enter of producing more accessible catechetical texts along, along the line of the, of, of the penny catechism is, is yet to come. It, I'm surprised that nobody's had the, the idea of producing a version of the catechism of the Penny Catechism cross-referenced with the Catechism of the Catholic Church that would relate the simple and memorable formulations of the traditional Catechism to their relevant references in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. To be able to, be able to have something like that, not only in the instruction of converts, but in, as, a, as a general reference, would be very, very useful for all of us. 
like to add what, uh, to what Father Martin Edwards said earlier on about the um, penny catechism. Um, I too must admit to, to, that when people knock at the presbytery door, as they used to do sometimes, and want to know about the Catholic faith, I would invite them in. And the first book I would give them would be a penny catechism, and the second one would be a simple prayer book. And that would be the beginning of the negotiations or discussions. Later on, I would give them a book on the Mass, what the Mass actually is, because um, a lot of people are very hazy. I'm not suggesting anyone in this room is hazy at all. Please don't think that. But a lot of people who are Catholics are hazy on what happens on the altar. And so I start off with a penny catechism, simple prayer book with the basic prayers in it, work up to the sacrifice of the Mass, and then eventually work round to the, the rosary. Those are the four things which I used to keep um, in the, in the presbytery for people at various stages of their instructions and so I've always fallen back on the penny catechism the first two questions are really the most important who made us and why and so I, I would always do that and, and you, we still get it from the Catholic Truth Society it's still in print and it's a very worthy handy pocket catechism I think we should be aware that the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith is currently preparing a brief catechism and we should be waiting to see that text and please God when it comes out uh, doing all we can to, to use that as it's intended and to promote, to promote that. It may go some way in terms of distilling the content of the catechism of the Catholic Church which as I understand it is its intention uh, for more popular use. Yes, uh, when I was uh, a little schoolboy, the sister who taught us catechism used to come in uh, and put on her desk, do you remember those old jars of sweets, those great big jars? And then the first boy to remember the page off by heart would get quite a lot of sweets. <laughs> now, I had a good memory. So, one, I became a priest and two, I became clinically obese for a while. <laughs> it didn't do me, well, at least one of us didn't do me any harm. As I said in my previous talk, I use the Penny Catechism much in the same way as Father Copsey does, although I also mentioned that I find it quite useful for sermons as well, if you want a, a succinct uh, definition of some article of faith. But I, I don't find in my own practice in the parish a contradiction between using the Penny Catechism for those things and going back uh, for preparing sermons or talks or meditations on the, the fuller and newer catechism. As I mentioned in my talk, the Penny Catechism ultimately derives from the Roman Catechism and it is envisaged, as uh, Brother has mentioned, to uh, produce uh, smaller catechisms uh, from this one. Uh, we haven't got, in my opinion, an adequate one yet in English. We may have one, and that might be the time then to discontinue the use of the Penny Catechism. But in the meantime, don't be ashamed. Continue to use it and make sure other people do as well, because it stood the test of time. Thank you very much. Now, um, our next question brings us um, fairly and squarely onto the moral law, but it homes in on a particular part of that by asking, why is the section on homosexuality too brief to be helpful? Can we have some comments on that question, please? Yes. Dr. Morris? I don't think that the section on homosexuality's main fault is that it's too brief. After all, it is one, two, three sections in, um, in a part which, for instance, only gives one section to prostitution, one to pornography, and so on. I think... The, the problem with it is not so much that it's too brief but that it's too vague and I notice it does say basing itself on sacred script which presents homosexual acts as acts of grave depravity tradition has always declared that homosexual acts are intrinsically disordered well taking this backwards I would say that for intrinsically disordered we need the word sinful which they do seem to rather tend to avoid 
it's against God's law, therefore it is cutting you off from God. And when it says basing itself on sacred scripture, it does indeed give you the reference from Genesis, which I haven't got the Old Testament here, but I'm pretty sure refers to the Sodom and Gomorrah episode. And it refers to Romans 1. Now I do have Romans 1 in front of me. And I'll read you a few words. It's a Knox translation. And Knox translates St. Paul as saying, he first of all says that God has shown man clearly that, that through all his works that he exists and that men have refused to accept this and they worship beasts and birds. And then he says, that is why God abandoned their lustful hearts to filthy practices of dishonouring their own bodies among themselves. They had exchanged God's truth for a lie, reverencing and worshipping the creature in preference to the creator. Blessed is he forever, amen. And in return, God abandoned them to passions which brought dishonour to themselves. Their women exchanged natural for unnatural intercourse. And the men on their side, giving up natural intercourse with women, were burnt up with desire for each other. Men practicing vileness with their fellow men. Thus they have received a fitting retribution for their false belief. Other Translations say they receive the due reward for their sins in their bodies. But the thing is that the language there is very, very severe, as you can hear. Now, the Catechism says, Tradition has always declared that homosexual acts are intrinsically disordered. They are contrary to the natural law. They close the sexual act to the gift of life. They do not proceed from a genuine, effective and sexual complementarity. Under no circumstances can they be approved. Which does seem to me somewhat milder than St. Paul. The second imperfection that I would find here is... This had, apparently it was, it was published in English in 1994, was it? No. Having been published in French in 1991 or two? Two, yes. And it shows the marks of being, having been published in the 1990s. Of the, in, the, in the 1990s. It's trying to use the modern mindset. It's, it's written in the modern mindset. So then we get... The number of men and women who have deep-seated homosexual tendencies is not negligible. Now they don't say, obviously, in so many words they were born with it, because deep-seated could be acquired, acquired, there's that word again, acquired non-virtue. Um, so they haven't actually said, they've said earlier on, the psychological genesis remains largely unexplained. But I believe there is a mindset now that says they're born like that, they can't help it. Whereas there is another mindset, I suppose, which says they had early experiences that caused them to tend in this way. And that mindset will go beyond that and say, it's possible that that tendency is there in everybody. And like all other tendencies, it has to be controlled by right reason. I can remember, I'm sorry to, to confess this to you, but I can distinctly remember as a child, maybe seven or eight, torturing a fly. I was a nasty little sadist, though I didn't know it. And of course, as I grew up, I knew this was the wrong thing to do. I wouldn't go to a bullfight, and so on. But the tendency is there. And we are fallen, after all, are we not? Original sin. And this, you see, goes along, to my mind, a little bit too much with the modern mindset that says, we're born like that and we can't help it. It goes on. This inclination, which is objectively disordered, constitutes for most of them a trial. They must be accepted with respect compassion and sensitivity. 
Psalm 20, 38, uh, 38 in the RSV, I think probably 37 in the Dowie version. If you read it, it's very interesting. It's written for people with AIDS, that psalm. And it says, when I confessed my sin, I did not confess my sin, and then when I did. And this is at all costs to be avoided now. You do not say a person is sinful. And how can they repent and be saved if they don't know they're sinful? So I think... Yeah. I think that there is a defect here, and if anybody has any influence, I think the word sin should be in, put in there somewhere. So my answer to the question is that it's not too short, but it's too vague. Just um, in defence, really, of, of what the Catechism has to say on this subject, um, if you look up uh, this matter in uh, previous moral treaties, uh, they, they always go into Latin. Of course, that wouldn't um, fool you, because I see your, your Latin's very good. But a um, uh, hundred years ago, books of moral theology uh, simply said nothing at all on this subject. It was seen purely in terms of physical actions. And I understand, I'm not an expert on this subject, that the word homosexuality was coined relatively recently, a hundred years ago, was it? It comes from uh, psychology. It isn't something that has been uh, in the vocabulary of the Catholic Church. I'm not going to name these acts. You know what I'm talking about. That was what Catholic theology, moral theology, was interested in if, if they had taken place and they were condemned rightly so as, as gravely sinful. So this concept of a homosexual person and homosexuality is something new in, in a catechism and so this is the first uh, treatment of the subject and I agree that it is in many ways inadequate for example something that hasn't been stated here in the first paragraph the catechism says its psychological genesis remains largely unexplained uh, the church isn't committing herself to the idea that uh, people are born homosexual, born gay, uh, as the, the phrase is now. On the other hand, she's not going to commit herself the other way uh, because this is, as I said, a, a subject that has not got uh, a long history in, in, in the uh, teaching of the church. It probably uh, is beginning now because it's been moved very much centre stage uh, and perhaps the, the a new edition of the catechism will um, bear that out. I would like to make one observation, um, not so much on the topic, but on the nature of the catechism itself. The catechism is not a pastoral manual, and perhaps we shouldn't look to it for all of the things we might look for in a moral theology book. We should, of course, look to the catechism for the doctrine, and Dr. Morris's point about, about strengthening and clarifying the catechism's teaching here, I think, is a good one. Are we all done with that one? Okay. Um, now we move on to, uh, again, a composite question because it draws together a number of concerns expressed in your questions. Um, why is Catholic teaching on the holy sacrifice of the Mass only covered, it seems, under the vague term Eucharistic celebration? Well, I, I don't think it is, actually, because the section on, on the uh, Blessed Eucharist, beginning at paragraph 1362, is under the subheading, The Sacrificial Memorial of Christ and of His Body, the Church. Beginning with the affirmation that I made a reference to this morning, the Eucharist is the memorial of Christ's Passover, the making presence and the sacramental offering of his unique sacrifice in the liturgy of the church which is his body I think that there, is, there is a development of the idea of, of sacrifice and its different understandings with relation to the blessed Eucharist not all found in that one single section but, but rather more diffusely in that whole section in relation to the Eucharist so I think the ideas 
are there, as is often the case and some of the questions have reflected this notion, it's not a matter of information not being there, but it's not being located all in the same place. The references are found in, in different sections as the catechism turns its attention to dis different aspects of the mystery. For instance, that there's quite a lot said on the notion of Christ's sacrifice, which is obviously the, the substantive theological idea behind the, the notion of the sacrifice of the Mass, in the whole section on salvation and the nature of, of redemption. So I think it's a matter of looking at various sections of the Catechism to build up uh, a more comprehensive idea of how a single theological notion is treated in the Catechism. To add that I share the puzzlement of the, the questioner on that question in any event. Um, as I mentioned previously, um, what happens on the altar? The Holy Father, in his recent encyclical a year or so ago on Holy Thursday, the Eucharist of the Church, tells us in his own words how wonderful the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass is. And I would much rather hear the words sacrifice of the Mass than Eucharistic celebration. We need to be... Um, the, the Holy Father tells us that um, every time Mass is celebrated, the Calvary event is made present. And those are rather staggering words. The same sacrifice takes place. The same victim is offered to Almighty God. This is what the Mass is all about. The, nothing better can be offered to Almighty God than his own Son. And this is what happens during every, every Mass which is celebrated. There's a great tendency to concentrate on the meal aspect, unfortunately, in schools. And sometimes we hear a holy meal being um, spoken of, holy bread being given at a certain time. All this is negative and it's taken away the true value of our sacrament. And so I hope in the course of time we can bring back the meaning which is sometimes in our, uh, people's minds in a fuzzy sort of way and emphasize on the true, true sacrifice of the Mass. Let's just be absolutely clear about what the Catechism says about the sacrifice of the Mass. The sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. The victim is one and the same. The same now offers through the ministry of priests who then offered himself on the cross. Only the manner of offering is different. And since in this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of his cross is contained and offered in an unbloody manner. This sacrifice is truly propitiatory. I see no defect in that explanation of the sacrifice of the... We're talking here about the sacrifice of the Mass, which is the theological idea in the paragraph that I've just read. I think, I think the problem we have here is one of terminology. The, the idea of the sacrifice of the Mass is just contained in the paragraph that I've read, which is substantively a quotation from the, the Council of Trent. There is no difference in the, in the doctrine of the sacrifice of the Mass as, present, as presented by the, Catholic, uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Thank you. Now, uh, we move on to one which, uh, again, reflects uh, a number of concerns um, to what extent is the Catechism of the Catholic Church an infallible document? Perhaps. Well, I, I touched on, on that if I, in my uh, talk, really, uh, just to say that um, the, the um, theologians talk about the various notes 
the uh, levels of, of teaching and the catechism as, as I mentioned clearly contains those uh, and uh, I understand that the catechism is an infallible document in the same way that the Second Vatican Council is infallible that's to say when it uh, proposes uh, defined infallible teachings many of those are contained in this document but there are also many other things that are not de fide not, not ex cathedra pronouncements the most notable ones of course are sayings of the saints very beautiful, very poetic uh, but by no means can you say these are infallible pronouncements so the answer I suppose is yes and no as a book it, it is nonsense to say this is an infallible document uh, having said that it does contain in the infallible teaching or some of the or most of the infallible teaching of, of the church um, now we've got a, a question that really combines three questions in one because uh, it touches on uh, three different topics but they are related um, what does the church teach now on purgatory, predestination and limbo? Who would like to go first on that one? I'm sorry, it is me again, but... <laughs> the difficulty is that I was concentrating on that first part and apart from the question on homosexuality and marriage they've all been uh, about that but uh, I have prepared a, a few notes uh, on this in, on the teaching in, in purgatory uh, the uh, council of Florence and Trent are, are quoted and, and the teaching is, is a very clear one that those who, who die in a state of grace but have not yet been purified enough to stand in the presence of God will go to purgatory it's called that the word purgatory is used uh, and also uh, and at the time it was controversial uh, they even talk about the fires of purgatory there's a reference to that not, not simply uh, a place of waiting not simply a place of purgation but purgation by fire how fire can uh, burn a soul in, in purgatory of course is a matter that isn't gone into but the full traditional doctrine of purgatory is given elsewhere uh, the Catechism talks about the importance of praying for the dead and principally offering the holy sacrifice of the Mass for them. So there's a very full treatment of uh, purgatory. On the predestination, there's one paragraph, and I think probably uh, in answer to the question, rather than hearing me, it's probably best quickly if I just read you that uh, paragraph. Uh, God predestines no one to go to hell, for this, a willful turning away from God, a mortal sin, is necessary. By the way, we don't often hear that word, do we? Mortal sin. And <laughs> persistence in it until the end. In the Eucharistic liturgy and in the daily prayers of the, her faithful, the Church implores the mercy of God, who does not want any to perish, but all to come to uh, repentance. And then there's a quotation from uh, the Eucharistic prayer, the Roman canon. Father, accept this offering from your whole family. Grant us your peace in this life. Save us from final damnation and count us among those you have chosen. By the way, when the good translation comes out, all these will have to be changed a bit, won't they? But uh, there's a quotation there from the liturgy. Now the third point, limbo, requires a slightly more of an explanation. You won't find the word limbo in the index but that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist in the catechism now when we use the term limbo there are two related concepts what the, the theologians call the limbus patrum the limbo of the fathers and the limbus infantum the limbo of babies of, of children now the first is taught and it's taught in the section of the creed uh, he died and was buried the harrowing of hell there's a beautiful page or so on that of what the meaning of Christ's death was what happened to his human soul 
uh, united to his divine person when the human body lay in the tomb. And he went down into variously called hell, Hades, and limbo. The word limbo is not used, but clearly this is what the fathers of the church and theologians have talked about, that before the coming of Christ, everyone was there in this place of waiting, but not all receiving uh, the same treatment. There was suffering for the down, purgation for those who needed it, for the just, uh, a blissful waiting uh, to encounter the, the, uh, the Lord who would take them to heaven. So that concept of limbo, the limbo of the fathers, is taught explicitly by uh, the catechism in the subject on the creed. The limbo of children is not taught. And the reason for that, as I understand it, is, is this. It's not obviously, never has been a de fide uh, um, belief in the same way, for example, that purgatory was. But it was uh, an, uh, a useful theological uh, construct to explain this doctrine that I've already touched on, and Father Copsey is, uh, wants to say something on, I know, about outside of the church there, there is no salvation. The attempt to reconcile philosophically uh, two great theological principles, that God wishes all people to be saved, and on the other hand, unless a man be born again of water and the Holy Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Innocent III, among other people, uh, taught, not infallibly, not ex cathedra, but did teach, and his teaching got into the code of, of canon law for a while, uh, that it was inconceivable that uh, a baby uh, who'd only got original sin on his soul, hadn't been baptized though, would go to hell. And yet, of course, ultimately, there are only two realities, heaven and hell, because purgatory is a reality that will not last forever, it won't last beyond the general judgment. So this idea of the limbo of, uh, of children has been dropped in the positive reformulation of the doctrine of no salvation outside of the church. The catechism teaches it, but it it regards it in this light, that no salvation outside of the church should mean that the church is the, in the terms of the, uni uh, the Second Vatican Council, the universal sacrament of salvation. That's to say, no one is saved if they are saved except through uh, the Catholic Church. So there is no instrument of salvation apart from the Catholic Church. And so, the possibility of innocence going to heaven, not having received the sacrament of baptism, but having received some sort of equivalent to what the church used to call the sacrament baptism of desire, uh, is raised as a possibility, not definitive, but this theological approach then supersedes the need for uh, a limbo where, where people were, uh, the idea was that they wouldn't have the beatific vision, but they would have natural blessedness. So as far as I see that second aspect of limbo, the limbo of children, it is bound up with this development of the doctrine of, of no salvation outside of the church. Well, I only concur what Father has just said, but it points out that in the Catechism we are told, number 161, believing in Jesus Christ and in the one who sent him for our salvation is necessary for obtaining that salvation. End of quotation. And so it um, illustrates to us that our missionary activities uh, are still very great. Now, we're coming, I think, on to the closing part of the, the question time. And um, there's an interesting question here, which, uh, which says, would the panel each like to name their favourite section of the catechism and explain why they chose it? Um, we might expand this if they don't have a favourite section perhaps they could indicate the section which they feel perhaps has the greatest significance or importance uh, however could each of the panel members name their favourite or preferred section and explain why they choose it um, should we start at the right hand end this time Yes, I was only asked this um, a few hours or so ago, and I will stick to what I've just said, really. Um, 
um, the necessity of believing in Jesus Christ for salvation. Um, if anyone is saved in the world, they are saved through the merits of Jesus Christ. And so, um, to me, it illustrates, as our Holy Father has said, that our missionary activity um, is only just beginning because there's so many people who don't know about Jesus Christ and so therefore we have as Christians from our baptism mandate an obligation to share the true faith with everyone we meet. I'm spending that part of my monastic life when I'm not looking after the monastery's chickens working in, in liturgical scholarship and so on. Paragraph 11... 25 this is the one that I would choose, second, of course, to the one Father has just, just quoted, which says, No sacramental right may be modified or manipulated at the will of the minister or the community. It then goes on to say something which is even more significant, particularly if one is looking at liturgical history in the last 40 to 50 years. Even the supreme authority in the church may not change the liturgy arbitrarily, but only in the obedience of faith and with religious respect for the mystery of the liturgy. Continuing the liturgical vein, I think we, this is obviously going to be some form of progressive revelation of the <laughs> unfolding of the mystery, given the, that the formulations that we tend to favour are obviously those which are pithy and put in, in a few words, the very nub of, uh, of the mystery. Mine's also a liturgical reference, paragraph 1074. The liturgy is the summit towards the activity, which the activity of the church is directed. It is also the font from which all her power flows. It is therefore the privileged place for catechizing the people of God. Catechesis is intrinsically linked with the whole of the liturgical and sacramental activity, for it is in the sacraments, especially in the Blessed Eucharist, that Christ Jesus works in fullness for the transformation of men. Yes, of course I'm going to cheat a little bit, and it's because, partly because I did want to say something about predestination, I didn't manage, so I'm going to say it now. <laughs> and so instead of taking a a favourite quotation from the Catechism, which I have to confess I don't perhaps know well enough to choose one, uh, I'm going, of course, to take it from St. Thomas. But, in fact, I'm not going to take it from St. Thomas. I'm going to take it from St. Augustine, has quoted by St. Thomas on the subject of predestination. Because you probably noticed in my speech that when I was talking about diffused moral virtues being, sorry, diffused, infused moral virtues being necessary for the theological virtues, you must have seen that in fact it all depends on God. It's all grace. And you've only got to push that back a little bit further and we're talking about predestination. And Thomas quotes St. Augustine very short, and I, I read it in Latin for the Latinists among you because it's rather difficult to translate. He starts off by saying why God pulls, which he means saves, this one and not that one. He says, Quare hunc trahet, why he pulls this one, et ilum non trahet, trahet, so not trahet, trahet, et ilum non trahet, he doesn't save that one. Noli vele di judicare, don't you try and judge. Si non vis errare, if you don't want to fall into error. Which I think rather sums up the question of predestination. Because Father did say, all right, God predestines no one to go to hell. Which in fact, maybe not, but St. Thomas doesn't say that. But it does say at the end, and count us among those you have chosen. It, predestination is a terrible problem, and we'd better not try and judge it if we don't want to get into a mess. That's what St. Augustine says. Father, can you round off Yes, I mean, I've talked about uh, in these questions myself as a, a seminarian, as a schoolboy. I'm going to go back to nappies now and talk about myself as a baby. Uh, when I first encountered the church and the priest 
said to me, what do you want here in the church? And my godfather said, faith. And he said, what does faith give you? Eternal life. That was the traditional form of baptism. Some of us still use it. And it's also used in the uh, RCIA if you're receiving an adult into the church through the waters of baptism. This is a faith of our Father's conference. Father Wadsworth was right to sound that note right at the beginning. That This is truly a celebration of the faith. We have difficulties, we have problems with some aspects of this, but we are united in our adherence to the faith of the church, the faith that gives us not just the promise of eternal happiness, but that life already, and the Catechism has a most lyrical section on this. I quote you a couple of lines. Faith makes us taste in advance the light of the beatific vision, the goal of our journey here below. Then we shall see God face to face as he is, so faith is already the beginning of eternal life. When we contemplate the blessings of faith even now, as if gazing at a reflection in a mirror, it is as if we already possessed the wonderful things which our faith assures us we shall one day enjoy. Thank you very much, Father. Well, on your behalf, I would like to thank our distinguished panel uh, for dealing with a, a wide variety of questions and uh, um, making some uh, very, very helpful comments. I'm sure you will agree. So, Father Edwards, Dr. Morris, Father Wadsworth, Dom Alquin, and Father Coxey, we thank you very much for forming our panel. Thank you. And could I just say, Father Copsey has to leave us now. He has a pressing uh, uh, engagement back at his own parish, uh, or the parish where he's helping out at the moment, some beads. Could we, as he leaves, wish him well in his new assignment? <laughs>